God in heaven, thank you for being so good to us. Thank you that we can still meet together through this means. And we're asking that you would speak to us um, as we're in a time that uh, is different than anything that any of us have ever dealt with in our lifetime. Lord, I just pray that you would stir our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would be present among each of us. And we're so thankful for the fact that the Spirit of God is not limited to this particular classroom, that you can minister to each person wherever they are right now. So we just pray that you would speak to us, that you would minister to us, and that you would prepare us for what's to come. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I was talking today with a guy named Lee Wellard. You ever heard of him? Big tall feller? Um, so he kind of talks funny. He's an accent like he's from the South or something. He's definitely not from, from the North. I don't know where he's from. Some, some place is not here. But um, So I was talking to him today, and he and I are both of the mind. I've heard this from many people. Daryl and I were talking about this morning, too. That this is not the crisis. This is not the thing that closes the work. But what I am convinced of is this is the thing to get people's attention to prepare them for the real thing. Uh, this is serious. I'm not downplaying that at all. This is difficult. This is serious. You guys are gone. Like, it's, it's real. But what we're enduring right now kind of reminds me of, if you've read in the Great Controversy, um, how Jesus in his warning said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, to get out. Um, and um, in the Great Controversy, we're told that not a single Christian perished in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 because there was a strange pause um, from the advance that was being uh, taken out on Jerusalem by the Romans. They stopped for a season, for seemingly no understood reason, uh, and the Christians left during that season, and in turn, the next wave came. And I think this is one of those eye-opening moments and, and wake-up calls for us as a people that the stuff that we've been telling people through our evangelistic series and our Bible studies is not fairy tales or algebra. Like, this is real. Um, that this is a real crisis that's coming upon this earth or real issues going on. And I wanted to focus on personal preparation today. So what to do in the closing crisis and how to prepare for the closing crisis. And um, I think there's some good lessons. I, I did like a really quick version of this in a worship with, when Steve Grabner was here, um, I would be foolish to assume you'd remember all that anyway, um, because it was a brief worship. And um, so anyway, I'm, I'm going to walk through some of that with you today and then share some other stories and some personal convictions I have on this matter because you're family. And uh, I want to, I feel like I need to do that. So um, I've prayed. So let's start. I'm going to do, how do I do this? I want to do that. Bam. Okay. So in Daniel chapter 3 is where we're going to kind of spend our time focusing. But the preface to Daniel chapter 3, we've talked about this before, but I want to kind of rehash this. Why is it, do you believe, that in Daniel chapter 3, um, well, let's just, get, let's just get the landscape. What happens in Daniel chapter 1? What are some important lessons from Daniel chapter 1? We'll do some brief summaries, and then we'll go into what happens in Daniel 3. What happens in Daniel 1? Well, it speaks about how Daniel and his friends were smarter, I guess, above intelligence than the other ones. Why? What? Because of their, I mean, I would say because what we study at is because of their diet. 
Okay, so I'm asking you to distill down Daniel 1, so you kind of jumped like halfway through Daniel 1. So what, what happens in Daniel 1 briefly to give us kind of a context? Well, they're taking captive the city of Jerusalem and okay. kind of all the elite. So Daniel and his two friends are taken and kind of integrated into Babylon, and they're trying to see, you know, who's the smartest, the best. They want to put them through school. Okay. And then how Lewis was saying, you know, they had their test with the food and... God worked, and they ate only vegetables and fruit and water, and they were superior to everyone. Okay. And so they, they, the chapter ends with, you know, Nebuchadnezzar seeing that, and then them going. Okay. So they were they chose to be faithful in something that, I mean, let's be honest, how many people are going to see? Who's going to know? Right? We talked about this in the leadership class last week. Like, who cares? Just, just eat. Like, it's not like you can go to Walmart. Like, you're prisoners in a foreign land. Like... Just take what's given to you, and, and I'm sure God will understand. But they seem to feel it was very important to be faithful in every duty. Yeah? Would that be a fair kind of um, summation of what transpired there? They felt that they needed to be faithful in every duty, and in doing so, uh, God honored them. God, God favored them, right? And then uh, in Daniel chapter 2, so they were, they were viewed as ten times wiser, right, than their contemporaries and all the, the other people around them, their companions. In Daniel chapter 2, what's kind of a distillation of what happens there? Um, Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. It's um, very interesting. He is confused by it, and he asks for his chief magistrates and his chief counselors to interpret the dream. They can't do it because they're fake. Um, and... <laughs> And then he gets angry because he really wants to understand the dream, and he makes death decree. And then Daniel hears the death decree because he's part of those wise men, whatever you want to call them. And he then prays to God, tells him that God God gives him to him the dream and a vision. And then he tells Arioch, I think is his name, to tell the king that he can interpret the dream. And then he goes and he explains in a dream, obviously proclaiming God through a power that he can't do it. And I think it's just, oh yeah, and he, he tells a dream... And all of interpretation, and his friends are promoted, and then it ends there. Okay. So we've talked about this before, but just for recap's sake, the there's something the king is upset about that he tells the wise men, right? He says, you guys are trying to do something. What were they trying to do? Do you remember? Buy time. Buy time, right? You're trying to buy time. And he says, you continue to lie to me and do other things. You're just trying to get me to give you more time. And then we get to Daniel chapter 2, and Daniel finds out about what has transpired, and he tells the king, like, hey, just give me some time, and I, I think I can answer this. And what does the king do when Daniel asks for time? He gives it to him. He gives it to him. What do you think would be a reason... One reason, at least. I'm sure there's multiple reasons. But what do you think would be a good reason on why Daniel will be given time, but others weren't? What what precedes Daniel chapter 2? Daniel chapter 1, basically, that he already showed that, well, he, he's faithful and he's trustworthy. He'll stick to, his, uh, to what he believes and follows. So if he says, if give me some time, I will interpret. He didn't hesitate to say he was quite bold. Yeah. So, so Daniel chapter 1, his faithfulness seen previously in Daniel chapter 1, 
gave the king enough confidence to do that, right? How could he even reason with Arioch? As Lexi was mentioning, like, I wasn't sent here to reason with you. I was sent here to kill you. But why would Arioch even spare? Their example in Daniel chapter 1 prepared them to be given time in Daniel chapter 2 to prove that God is God. Yeah? You think that that's kind of a fair assessment of what, what's going on there? Okay? So then we get to Daniel chapter 3, right? There's a decree in Daniel chapter 3. In other words, a, a, an image or a statue in Daniel chapter 2. And of that statue, Nebuchadnezzar actually played a role in that statue. What role was that? Daniel says, you, O king, are the head of gold, head of gold right? And so Nebuchadnezzar, he's convicted, right? He falls on his face before a humiliated servant, a castrated servant, and says that your God is the God of gods. He's the guy. And then we get to Daniel chapter 3, and Nebuchadnezzar makes an image out of what type of metal? Gold. Gold. The whole thing is gold. And so his thought is, I don't like this idea because one of the things that Daniel mentions in his explanation is, then a kingdom inferior to yours. Can you imagine, right, you're being told the kingdom that will follow you will be one that's inferior to your current one? That makes no sense. Like, if they're inferior to me, certainly I'm going to win a battle, but that's not how it goes down. So they're inferior to you. So he says, I have a better idea. How about we make an entire statue out of gold? And not only that, I want the whole known world to know just how awesome I am and I'm going to command them to worship. Now, Daniel chapter 3 is a type of the crisis that's to come. You know that, right? That what happens in Daniel chapter 3, the summoning of the world to worship an image, right? This is forecasting the crisis that is to come. So it's very relevant information here for us. But in Daniel chapter 3, he sets it up in verse 2, Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So all those guys, they come, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that the time that you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship before the gold image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So notice, even back in the day, they knew that the best way to get people to respond to an appeal is with music, <laughs> right? It can move people. Lexi. Yeah, I was just going to, I wasn't sure if you are going to add that, but I was just going to comment on that as well. Um, that's another, because you're saying this is very relevant to our day and age as well. That's another thing that Satan is really, really using, music. It's so easy to follow artists to, you know, to kind of just become like, enamored by them or even honestly I mean I struggled with you know really like being obsessed with them and so it, it, it's so easy just like with this he, he uses that with us you know bowing down really you know you need to serve the other God he uses music and intertwines that within and really just makes it seem like it's okay and so I really love that because it's it's very relevant again like just like you were saying to our day and age very much so yeah very very much so and so and then this isn't to bag on music I love I mean I I was was in music for years like that was that was my life right my whole life was wrapped up in that and that was part of the problem um, <laughs> as I've come to see later in life but the it was something that was very important to me um, and God kind of helped me to see that I need to be more intentional in the choices that I make right I need to be more careful and more intentional with those choices so um, so anyway the decree is given 
right? And, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those aren't their Hebrew names, but that's the name that they're referred to in this book, largely, um, is in this chapter, largely, that they're like these three obdurate weeds on the plain of Dura, right? Just imagine, everyone bows down, and you got these, right? If you ever, like, you're doing your hair, but you got these, like, you know, hairs that just don't want to obey, they just kind of do their own thing, it, it, but everything else is kind of maintaining and behaving itself. It's like that, right? Um, and so they, they won't bow. They refuse to bow, and word gets to the king, right? So everyone else is stirred by this. It's a very, I'm sure, very emotional and a very sensual moment. I don't mean it in a sexual sense, but your senses are overwhelmed visually, audibly, and so forth, right? And... So then it says uh, in verse 8, Therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews, these three dudes. Daniel is as strangely absent in this narrative. He's nowhere to be found. And, I mean, the, the assumption is that I hear from many people is that Daniel was probably given orders from the king to be somewhere else at that stage. Right? Because it's only, because I assure you, Daniel isn't the person who bowed uh, with everybody else and only these three guys stood. Daniel just wasn't even there. There's just no reason to believe that he was. But um, even though all these leaders were asked to be there, as it says in the beginning of the chapter, so they say, um, O King Nebuchadnezzar, you, O King, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, um, that they should all fall down, fall down and worship um, the gold image, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast in the midst of a burning fire furnace. But there are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, right? Lexi mentioned this, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got a promotion at Daniel's bidding after Daniel 2, right? And they're saying, hey, these dudes, these foreigners that you brought in here, they're not bowing to your image like we are, Okay? And these men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. The Nebuchadnezzar, it says, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it's interesting to me, when, when word gets to Daniel on what's going on in Daniel chapter 2, does he remember how he responds? Ariok gets to the door, and it says that Daniel responds with something and something. Daniel chapter 2. With counsel and wisdom. Counsel and wisdom in verse 14 of Daniel 2. But the king responds to news in a different way, right? He's under a different spirit. He responds with rage and fury, it says. And he gave the command to bring them. So they brought them. Verse 14, now in Daniel 3. Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you're ready at the time, um, if you're ready at the time that you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you should be cast immediately in the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Now, notice that music is still tied to the second chance. Right? There is not a requirement here. Like, look, they didn't bow the first time. Just bow now. But no, 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 no. We're going to play the music again. 
right? He seems to feel and believe that the music itself can kind of aid them in making this decision. Do you notice that? And so anyway, he does it, but, but they don't, don't respond, right? So but listen to this. As the three Hebrews stood before the king, he was convinced that they possessed something the other wise men of his kingdom did not have. They had been faithful in the performance of every duty, and he would give them another trial. So I'm kind of doing a split screen thing here, um, and I'll share my screen with you, but you're going to see like my background and stuff, which is still fine. Um, let me do this. Uh, so it says, as the three Hebrews stood before the king, he was convinced that they possessed something otherwise men of his kingdom did not have. And then what does it say about them and their characters? Can you see the phone? Did you ask a question? Yeah, I did. I said, what, did, what does it say next? Anna, go ahead. It says they have been faithful in the performance of every duty. All right, so they were faithful in every duty, right? That's a big deal. And so it says he would give them another trial. Now, there's no reason to give another trial. These guys have been troublemakers, and enough, just kill them, right? Just get rid of them. They're not even from here. Who cares? But he actually gives them a second chance, and I believe that has largely to do with the fact that they were faithful in Daniel chapter 1. That them being faithful in every duty in Daniel chapter 1 and in their leadership responsibilities outside of the text that we have access to led him to really not want to lose them, but to get their allegiance, right? And so he's going to do what he can to get them to budge, right? Okay. So they refused to bow, so the king's initial response is to give them that second chance. They don't uh, take the bait. And so that says here... Uh, verse at the end of verse 15 it says and who is the God who will deliver you from my hands isn't that something right if I was feeling salty uh, I would probably say the same God that put you on your face in Daniel chapter 2 right you've met him before but they don't do that which is pretty smart um, and that's that's where we are so then they say, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that's the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image which you have set up. We are fully convinced of the fact that God is going to bless us and protect us. But even if he doesn't, we're still not bowing. Not going to do it, bro. I'm not going to budge. And that's a big one, yeah? Uh, it's a really, really big thing. That but if not is a game. That just, that's just studly, right? Like, it just, I, we're not budging, even if God doesn't provide for us. So they're thrown into the furnace, right? He's full of fury. The expression of his face changed towards them. He spoke and commanded to heat the, the furnace seven times more. You know the story. The guys that throw them in get burned to bits. These guys aren't even burned. In fact, they don't even smell like smoke when they come out of the fire. The only thing that is burned is the ropes, right? You ever lived in a home with a wood stove or a wood furnace or a fireplace, right? You smell like smoke just by doing things. You're not, you're not in the fire. You're just near the fire. Yet these guys are fully immersed in 
Can't tell, right? So here's the amazing thing, though, because in verse 24, it says this. Then Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, or his high officials, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see how many men. I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And then what does the fourth one look like? Son of God? Says, yeah, yeah, one looks like the Son of God. So do you think then that maybe Nebuchadnezzar watched the Passion of the Christ and saw Mel Gibson's depiction of Jesus and what he looked like? You think that that's what happened? Or may, maybe he read the Spirit of Prophecy, where there's a picture she saw... Uh, that someone had made that looked very much like what she saw of Jesus. You think that's what it was? That maybe Nebuchadnezzar got access to Ellen White's writings and saw that the picture that Ellen White saw of Jesus. How does he know it looks like the Son of God? You can't encounter Jesus and not know. Right? You, you, just, you, you just know. Like, whether you've seen pictures, which we don't even know what he looks like, uh, we get the illusion from in the light, but like we don't know, but you cannot encounter the living Christ and not know, and that's the point, right? It's that life changing that you just know that's he's the guy. This is truly the Son of God, and uh, so here's the thing that's very important for us, I think, in this coming crisis, that when we choose, as Daniel and his three friends chose to do, to be faithful in every duty and we get put on the hot seat for being faithful in every duty, you are not standing alone. You're not. Right? We need to determine and commit in our hearts before the crisis that we are going to choose Jesus come what may. That Jesus is our forever friend. William Miller, whenever we read about his conversion experience, says that in Jesus I found a friend, right? We think about prophecy and the 2300 days and the sanctuary and all this stuff about William Miller, but we lose sight of the fact that this guy truly fell head over heels in love with Jesus. In Jesus he found a friend, right? Not someone to be afraid of, someone to be a friend of. And that is what God wants us to have, that type of an experience that I would, I would rather die than sin. Right? I would rather die than dishonor my Lord. And we have to determine and commit in our hearts now to want to live a life that looks like that. Because you're not going to muster that on the plain of Dura. Right? That impulse doesn't awaken itself on the plain of Dura. That's an impulse that has been cultivated and grown for years. Are you with me? Right? These guys didn't muster something special and new in that one moment. This is a lifestyle that they had adopted before a crisis came, right? They were committed to that before Daniel 1, and they just lived it out in Daniel 1 and in Daniel 2. And so when Daniel 3 came, that's, that's what they did. And so glory ends up being brought to God because all these people that Nebuchadnezzar called from the known world to worship this image, they watched this whole event. God takes something that was bad and uses it for his glory. Right? And this is why I would say that I don't believe that events like this are God's will, but I do believe that God can capitalize on events like this. 
You understand the difference? What Jesus knows is not what Jesus chose. And so I don't believe that God preordains for, for certain things to happen on earth. What I do believe is that we've been told very clearly, we talked about last week, suffering's coming. Challenges will come. The four winds that have been restrained are going to be loosed. But God's people are being sealed and transformed in that process, right? As those winds are being held. And, and in that process, stuff's going to happen, right? Okay, um, listen to this. By the deliverance of his faithful servants, the Lord declared that he takes his stand with the oppressed, and he rebukes all earthly powers that rebel against the authority of heaven. The three Hebrews declared to the whole nation of Babylon their fate in whom they worshipped, and that they relied on God. And it paid off, didn't it? Right? It's a massive testimony. In the hour of their trial, they remembered the promise. Now, if they remembered the promise, what does that imply? They knew the promise. They, they knew the promise. Right? They'd stored it in their hearts. And so, this is from the book of Isaiah. But it says, When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. There literally was a promise in Scripture that if you get put into fire, it's not going to hurt you. Well, that's quite convenient, isn't it, in this situation? Hey, Remember that, remember that time we were doing scripture verses together as iron sharpens iron? Remember that one about the fire? It'd probably do some good right about now, wouldn't it? Yeah, you're right. Let's claim that promise. Right? And that's exactly what happened. They claimed the promise of the Word of God, and the Word of God has creative power, right, to sustain and to fulfill it. Ellen White says this. She says that through the promises themselves, the promises are fulfilled. Right? Through the claiming of the promise, the promise is received. That's what brings it into life. And in a marvelous manner, their faith in the living word had been honored in the sight of all. The tidings of their wonderful deliverance were carried to many countries by the representatives of the different nations that had been invited by Nebuchadnezzar to the dedication. Through the faithfulness of his children, God was glorified in all the earth. Unfortunately, in our, in our conversations about dealing with your sin, dealing with your sin, dealing with your sin, we forget the fact that God's intention for us overcoming isn't just about you. Yeah? For many of us, the way that it's been communicated and what we're hearing is, you need to, you need to, you need to. It's about you getting sin out of your life. And sin does need to be purged from our life. We've talked about that already. Right? God promises to will and to do according to his good pleasure in our lives. But we've got to stop thinking about ourselves and focusing on ourselves. The, one of the reasons why we're to be storing those promises of God in our heart is not just for our own survival's sake, not just to get in the ark, as Lexi mentioned, right? but to be a Noah. Right? The point was to have this available to be a testimony of blessing to other people. Yeah? Okay? Important are the lessons to be learned from the experience of the Hebrew youth on the plain of Dura. In this our day, many of God's servants, though innocent of wrongdoing, will be given over to suffer humiliation and abuse at the hands of those who, inspired by Satan, are filled with envy and religious bigotry. Especially will the wrath of man be aroused against those who hallow the Sabbath of the fourth commandment, and at last a universal decree will denounce them as deserving of death. 
She's very clearly connecting the situation of Daniel 3 to the image of the beast that's to be directed in Revelation chapter 13 and so forth, right? And the Sabbath is a big, big part of this. Listen to this, though. The season of distress before God's people will call for a faith that will not falter. His children must make it manifest that he is the only object of their worship and that no consideration, not even that of life itself, can induce them to make the least concession to false worship. To the loyal heart, the commands of sinful, finite men will sink into insignificance beside the word of the eternal God. Truth will be obeyed, though the result be imprisonment or exile or death. Right? That, that fixed determination in your heart and mind that, God, I want to live a life that honors your word no matter what comes against me. And I'm asking you to make me to that type of person today so that when that day comes that I'm not expecting, I can be that person for you then. Does that make sense? Okay? As in the days of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, so in the closing periods of earth's history, the Lord will work mightily in behalf of those who stand steadfastly for the right. He who walked with the Hebrew worthies in the fiery furnace will be with his followers wherever they are. His abiding presence will comfort and sustain in the midst of the time of trouble, trouble such as has not been since there was a nation, his chosen ones will stand unmoved. Here's the good news, guys. When we make a decision, a commitment in our hearts, a covenant with God, that I want to be faithful to your word no matter what comes against me, you are not making that decision alone. Are you hearing me today? You are not making that decision alone, guys. God will be with you in that moment. All right? I know that we've talked about that quote when we did our last generation of theology class about standing without a mediator. That does not mean you're standing without help. All right? There's just no one to transfer sin into the sanctuary. At that stage, you won't need it because you've been sealed. Right? But at this stage, this is, this is real, right? And God's chosen people will stand because God is standing with them and empowering them to stand, right? But you don't start that conversation on the plan of Dura, yeah? You don't start that preparation. You don't cram the night before for this test. You shouldn't cram the night before anyway. It doesn't work. Um, science proves that now. Anyway, Satan with all the hosts of evil cannot destroy the weakest of God's saints. Amen? Lift those hands in the air and say a silent amen as your microphones are muted. Right? Satan with all the hosts of evil cannot destroy the weakest of God's saints. If you ever felt weak, it doesn't matter. Angels that excel in strength will protect them. And in their behalf, Jehovah will reveal himself as a God of gods, able to save to the uttermost those who have put their trust in him. We see a similar theme in Daniel 6. This is largely about the three Hebrew worthies in Daniel chapter 3. But we do need to just lay this down because the point is very similar. Daniel is in a very high position in the government, and just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but an even higher position at this stage. The other people in Medo-Persia at this stage, because the governments had changed hands from Babylon to Medo-Persia, they're jealous of him. And so they say the only way we're going to get this guy in trouble is if we make worshiping his God illegal. We talked about that in our leadership class last week. They do it. Daniel stands, he prays with his window open, not in his closet, as Jesus said, uh, because that's what he always did. He didn't change his behavior just because the world was falling apart, right? Uh, we talked about this in the last generation theology class, that there's a quote from Ella White where she says that 
the we should not be using the imminence of Jesus' coming and the terrors of the day of God to motivate people. She says it savors of selfishness and that Jesus is attractive, that we should be the person in that crisis that we were the day before the crisis, right? And that's a very, very important point with this. So Daniel doesn't do anything differently just because the government's making decrees that are harmful to him, right? Why? Because he purposed in his heart that I'm going to follow the word of God and make God my priority, yeah? And when you purpose in your heart and covenant with God and ask for his grace and his strength to walk in that commitment, he will give you boldness. There's another place where Illinois talks about the fact that many do not have a martyr's faith because it's not yet required of them, but that God will give them that measure of boldness that's needed in those moments because they've been investing before then, right? So the jealousy is awakened. There's another death decree given. Listen to this. Um, the king regret. Oh, wait, go back. Here we go. All right, this is from Prophets and Kings as well. Um, well, we already, we already did that. Yeah. So the king regrets the fact that he's made this decree, tries to change it, but according to the laws of the Medes and Persians, he can't. Right? Daniel did such a good witness in Medo Persia, Babylon and Medo Persia that he's not going to budge. But he has to let him go in. God triumphs, right? The lions are like house cats the whole time he's in there. But when the bad guys get thrown in there, they're destroyed before their bones even hit the base of the pit, right? They're completely destroyed. All right, so God gets glory at it. But listen to this. From the story of Daniel's deliverance, we may learn that in seasons of trial and gloom, God's children should be just what they were when their prospects were bright with hope and their surroundings all that they could desire. But here's the question. What do I look like when the prospects are bright with hope and my surroundings are all that I could desire? Am I actually prioritizing the things of God now? Or am I being one of those lazy, you know, Bible students that knows, I know there's a quiz at the end of the quarter and I'm just not going to worry about it and I'll study the day before, right? As soon as I see the Sunday law happening, then I'll, I'll walk away from all the stuff that I ran to right now. I'll leave all that stuff. I'll stop playing video games. I'll stop, you know, doing this and doing that and, and, and being half in and half out. Then I'll go all in for Jesus. Well, we have no guarantee from the life of Lot, we can see. We have no guarantee that we'll even have a desire to change at that stage. Lot was fighting to stay in Sodom when angels were coming to save his life. Yeah? You have no guarantee that you're going to be ready for that, to just magically have a desire. Because the thing is, like your affections are centered on the things that you're sold out to right now. Those idols of our experience right now, that's where our affections are, and that's what we will be loyal to when crisis comes. Does that make sense? So it's very important for us to ensure right now, especially as we see things happening in the world, to recognize, you know, just do an inventory. I'm not saying freak out right, and, and change everything out of fear, because here's what's going to happen. My guess is things are going to normalize. Once this thing blows over, things will normalize, and people will just roll back over and go back to sleep. That should not be us. Amen? This is an opportunity for us to do an inventory. What has my affections? What are my priorities focused on right now, and what is competing for my time with God? Because personal time with God and personal consecration to God is what made them the people they were in moments of trial and difficulty. 
I assure you that they weren't thinking, I mean, yeah, I could spend time with God, but I got other stuff to do. Right? They, they were committed to communing with God and consecrating themselves to God daily. They were faithful in every duty. It doesn't come from nowhere. Right? They were communing with God. It's that important. I'm not saying if you don't read your Bible, you're going to be lost. My point is, why wouldn't you read your Bible? Right? It's your lifeline. It literally can create a universe out of nothing. It can change your life. Maybe the reason why we're struggling with things or we're not overcoming is because the Word of God has no power in our life because it has no window of availability in our life. You can't expect the Word of God to change your life if you're not opening the Word of God and allowing it to change your life. Right? We're guaranteed in John chapter 17 that sanctify them by your truth. Your Word is truth. Jesus already prayed for that, guys. It's a done deal. The variable is, am I actually praying God's Word back to Him Am I reading the word for myself? Am I storing those promises in my heart now? That's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. That's what Daniel did. And that's what enabled them to be who they needed to be when the crisis came. Right? Because they already knew God. They already had a habit of communing with him and knowing him intimately. Does that make sense? You don't find a consecration experience at the 11th hour. You either have it or you don't. Right? This is the difference between the wise and foolish virgins. Like They had kind of an experience, but when they realized it was really serious, they realized they had a gaping deficiency, and there was nothing they could do about it. Are you with me? And so it's important for us, in the midst of this crisis, you got time, guys. Right? This is the ideal time. If you have not had a, an, a regular devotional life, if you have not had a regular, consistent, and vibrant prayer life, Now's the time to try it out, right? Redo your life. Deconstruct and reconstruct and, and build a lifestyle. Build a thought process. Build a, a habitual pattern of who you want to be when the real crisis comes. You can actually start that right now, yeah? And it pays massive dividends when it matters most, right? Because I got news for you. They didn't become someone different on the plain of Dura. Daniel didn't become someone different. Oh man, I better, better open my windows and show Jesus I really mean it because you know, it's getting serious out here. It's getting hot. Like, no, Daniel did the same thing he did yesterday. Your decrees don't change anything. I'm going to be who God's called me to be. Do you know who God has called you to be? Do you know the experience that God has called you to have? Right? Do you know what's available to you and what you're entitled to in being able to commune with God on a daily basis as, as man speaks with a friend. You can have that face-to-face -face experience that Moses had. That's available to you. You can do that. And the question is, is that actually a priority for you? Do you want that? It's available to everyone who wants it. So now's the time. Now's the ideal time to start building that. Okay? So anyway, she says, From the story of Daniel's deliverance, we may learn that in seasons of trial and gloom, God's children should be just what they were when their prospects were bright with hope in their surroundings, all that they could desire. For some of us, we may not want to be who we've been when the prospects are green. Daniel in the lion's den was the same Daniel who stood before the king as chief among the ministers of state and as a prophet of the Most High. A man whose heart is stayed upon God will be the same in the hour of his greatest trial as he is in prosperity, when the light and favor of God and man beam upon him. Faith reaches to the unseen and grasps eternal realities. Guys, this is game changer, right? This, this is, there's no better time to read that quote than today. 
then right now, when the world is wrestling in the midst of a crisis, with uncertainty, when something has rocked your whole day-to-day life, man, like, God's asking me to be the consecrated person that he wants for me to be at the end of time, right now. Right? God, God is inviting me to the privilege of that level of communion and experience with him right now. Right? We can have that. We can start to embark upon that journey even now. You can start investing in your retirement, if you will, right? You, you can be spending extra time with Jesus, re-consecrating yourself to God, searching your own heart. We can be doing that right now during this time where the schedule has changed, right? Where there's other stuff going on. We can do that right now. And what better time to do it than right now? And it's going to pay us massive dividends when the, when the resurgence with even greater muster comes, right? We'll, we'll be who we need to be then. We can start that right now. So it's easy to find oneself in a mindset of fear when thinking about having to face circumstances like that, isn't it? Yeah? Like, dang, that's some pretty heavy stuff. There's no way I can stand like those guys, right? And we can be tempted to believe that these guys, seemingly on a whim, mustered the guts to be superhumans in that moment. But that's not the way it happened. Right? They were just who they should have been before. Listen to this. This is from Christ's Object Lessons. Only by faithfulness in the little things can the soul be trained to act with fidelity under larger responsibilities. So we don't really place a lot of importance on day-to-day tasks. It's one day of devotions. It's uh, whatever. One day turns into a week, but it's it's fine. And who cares, right? They're just day-to-day responsibilities. What really matters is the big game at the end of time. That's not actually how it works. The day-by-day decisions you're making now make you into the very person you will be when it matters most. Right? It will either set you up to succeed or set you up to fail during that time. And so... In faithfulness in the small things, in making our beds, right? In, in, in honoring our families, in, in taking care of the house, right? In, in doing, going the extra mile to bless your neighbor at a time of trial and need, right? In those day-by-day decisions that seem small and insignificant to us, it's literally shaping you into a type of person who will respond under duress later, right? There's a reason why athletes, when they practice, they don't just mess around, right? They practice in intense environments. Why? Right? So I'll give you an example. I was lazy when it came to basketball. Super lazy. All I wanted to do was shoot three-pointers. That's all I cared about. Well, the problem is I got to a point where I could shoot pretty well, but I was just walking around a gym, popping up shots, but I wasn't in intense environments. And so you know what would happen when I get to games? Those shots I could make on the floor, calm and relaxed and stopped. You know, I wasn't running and jumping, but it was just, you know, square up and shoot. Those shots didn't fall in a game situation. You know why? Because your heart rate is up, right? There's some guy who's in your face trying to guard. It's different, right? But if you practice in an environment, if you're investing in an environment that isn't the big game, That's what prepares you to succeed when you do get into the big game. Does that make sense? And uh, so, I'm terrible at defense, and I'm terrible at ball handling, but I can pass and shoot. I'm pretty much worthless. I'm not a point guard, right? I'm just a guy on the wing. Throw me the rock, and I'll pop and shoot. But that's all I can do because I was lazy. I didn't develop myself in those other areas. 
and in turn, it has not helped me, right, in more pressing situations. So, only by faithfulness in the little things can the soul be trained to act with fidelity under larger responsibilities. God brought Daniel and his fellows in a connection with the great men of Babylon, that these heathen men might become acquainted with the principles of true religion. In the midst of a nation of idolaters, Daniel was to represent the character of God. So the amazing thing is, God literally used the nation of Israel to reach the people that they refused to reach by letting them go into exile, right? They were supposed to reach the world, Ezekiel 36 says, but instead the surrounding nations were blaspheming the name of God. So what does God do? While they're in exile, he has these people of righteousness, you know, Nehemiah or Ezra or Daniel or Jeremiah. He has these guys who end up being massive, Joseph, right, in Egypt, he has these guys end up being witnesses to world leaders, right? He kind of uses the nation of Israel like a Trojan horse while in captivity to show people that there's a God in heaven who's real and worthy of worship, right? If you won't win souls, he will. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? And so that's his rod of correction ends up using the Israelites to reach other people through the example of the few righteous that he had. Um, and we're going to reach this. All right. So how did he become fitted for a position of so great trust and honor? Speaking of Daniel, it was his faithfulness in the little things, she says again, that gave complexion to his whole life. He honored God in the smallest duties, and the Lord cooperated with him. To Daniel and his companions, God gave knowledge and skill and all learning and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. As God called Daniel to witness for him in Babylon, so he calls us to be his witnesses in the world today. In the smallest as well as the largest affairs of life, he desires us to reveal to men the principles of his kingdom. So this is that good time to do an inventory. When I've been asked to fulfill responsibilities, have I revealed to people the principles of God's kingdom? Or have I done the bare minimum? Have I sought to be a person of excellence in my chosen fields? Or do I just do enough to get by because that's not really important, you know, like... Yeah, I got asked to speak at church, but I got stuff to do. I just forgot. I'll just, I'll just, you know, whip something together real quick, and it'll be fine. I know I'm supposed to give worships, but I just, I forgot. I'm not supposed to do homework, but I kind of forgot, so I'll just write something really fast, right? Those decisions you're making now are actually revealing something about your character now. Does that make sense? Our, our, our laziness, our being slack in our responsibilities, our cutting corners, is revealing something about us. Not that we're damned to hell, right? That, that we're unsavable, that we're losers, but it is revealing weaknesses. I don't know about you guys, but I've had some weaknesses on my character revealed in the midst of this crisis. Maybe you've had that too. Things that God has shown me that I need to deal with. And it's, he's not doing that to shame me and show me there's no hope for me. He's doing it because he loves me and wants me to be ready. Does that make sense? So take advantage of the things that God is showing you now and those things that need to be dealt with, that need to be surrendered, right? This is the perfect time to do that. You don't have the day-to-day -day responsibilities you used to have. Now's an opportunity to invest in your future you, to invest in your eternal destiny, and to invest in your usefulness to others in a coming crisis. Yeah? It's a perfect time to do that. So, the amazing and beautiful thing is, the very thing that God is asking us to do, He's actually willing to empower us to do. 
God's not saying, get that junk out of your life, change this, change that, stop this, start that, on your own. So maybe you have zero motivation intrinsically to do what needs to be done. Many times that can be birthed out of self-hatred. We fail in our efforts at self-improvement because we hate ourselves. Right? So January comes around, I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to get fit. I'm going to go vegan. I'm going to get the ice cream out of the refrigerator. I'm going to lift weights. We make these commitments in January of who we think we're going to be for the next year. With, with good intentions, I think, for the most part. And then we crash and burn. Why? Because we were doing them for us and we hate us. Many times, those seeds of self-hatred, those negative core beliefs and thought patterns actually sabotage our attempts to make a better us. And why is that? Because the power source is us and the motivation is us. Hey, what if, what if my motivation was to ensure that I could be who God wanted me to be to bless somebody else, not just to look better in pictures? Right? Not just to feel better about myself at potluck and feel whatever. Like, what, what is the reason why God was giving us these convictions about personal improvement was not for you. It was for other people's benefit. It was for his glory. What if doing this for God's sake and for other people's sake became our motivator? Do you think we'd be more prone to succeed? I think we would. Right? Because selfishness would no longer be the driving force. And we've already talked about this, but selfishness is not God's kingdom principle, is it? It's Satan's kingdom principle. So, anyway, there's some, some good thoughts here that we don't have to do all this on our own. We just have to be willing. And then we can go to the power source and ask him to sanctify our motives. Right? To sanctify these areas of our lives where we are not succeeding, but we wish that we would. God, I, I don't value you. I don't want naturally to spend time with you in your word. And I need you to change that because I recognize that if your work can change lives and my life doesn't seem to be growing as I wish it would, then I, I need more of you in my life. But I don't even know how to start. I don't have the motivation. Would you help me? Do you think God would answer that prayer? What do you think? Yeah, 1 John 5 says that this is the confidence that we can have in him. Here, now here's the maybe. Here's the confidence that we can have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, question, is it God's will for you to grow? Is it God's will for you to overcome? Is it God's will for you to be able to have a vibrant communion with him for yourself? Not out of obligation, but because you love him and want to spend time with him. Yes! Yes, yes, yes! Well, if you ask God to help you in these areas, we can have confidence that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He heard that prayer. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, then we know, not hope, we know that we have the petition that we've asked of him. So if you're doing an inventory right now of who you are and who you need to be in a crisis, recognizing in this crisis right now, I'm not who I need to be, now's a great time to run to Jesus. And beg of him as Jacob, as Jacob, as Jacob begged, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. I'm not going to stop bothering you until you change my desires and give me a longing to actually spend time with you. I don't know why I don't want that. I really feel like I should want that. Something's wrong with me and I don't know why. Would you change that? Would you rearrange my priorities? Would you give me a willingness and an earnest desire to wake up 
and to give you the first fruits of my day. I want you to speak love into my life. I want you to speak hope into my life. I want you to speak forgiveness and healing into my experience. God, would you do that for me? You think he would? Yeah, you better believe it. Absolutely. Listen to this. As the will of man cooperates with the will of God, it becomes omnipotent, all-powerful. And whatever is to be done at God's command may be accomplished in his strength. All his biddings are enablings. Yes, we need to change. Yes, we need to grow. But that weight isn't all on you. It's not. There is help available to you. All you have to do is ask. You don't find yourself having a desire to do what you need to do. He can cause you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He can give you the desire. There's nothing in your life right now that is hindering your experience that is bigger than Jesus. Nothing, guys. Not your laziness, not your, your, your biology, your brain chemistry, not your, your, your cultivated and inherited tendencies. It does not matter. Jesus can change your life. He longs to change your life. He just needs your permission. So you've not been faithful or consistent in anything you promised God. So what? God, would you make me willing to do it today? And tomorrow, God, would you make me willing to do it today? Give me the ability to be faithful in the small things today, Lord. You know that prayer is his will. Believe that he said it and go forward as if it's already true. That's what God wants, guys. That's where it starts. And it works. This is how Jesus lived his life. He continually abided in God and knew that apart from God, he could do nothing. Right? And he did this to be able to empower you and I to overcome and do the same. All right. So every ounce of strength that you need to stand is already available to you in Christ. He's not asking you to become someone who can stand. He is someone who can stand and he will stand through you. Right? He can do that. He can empower you to be that very person. He's asking you to muster that up on your own strength. He can provide that strength. So the decisions you're making from day to day right now are making you into the person that you will be when it matters the most. The day that many people are afraid of. But the decisions you make now are preparing you to fail or succeed in that crisis. Yeah? So, our hope of being able to stand. Um, I'm going to... We'll pause here and then we'll pick up um, after the break. But are there any questions so far on this? Um, has this made sense, first of all? Yes or no? Yeah? Okay. Are there any questions so far? Or comments even? Just things that have been helpful for you or feedback? Yes. Um, I, I really like that. I've been thinking these past couple days about what character really is. You know, that like character is the only thing that we take to heaven. And I... I've just been thinking about this topic a lot, and so it's kind of interesting to me that we're talking about this again today. Um, but just I think God has been working on me and convicting me of this specific thing that like what I do today, it matters. Mm -hmm. And you know, you know, there's not there's not a day that's discarded and that doesn't count towards the end. So, um, but I really appreciated um, how you went through Daniel, and I, I love it when you when we can look at stories from the Bible and then apply it directly into our lives. And that, you know, 
it's like a living and breathing word. So mm. I really like the way that it was formatted and it made a lot of sense for me. Praise God. What else? Any thoughts or comments? That they had a promise to claim in the Bible about walking through fire. Like, yeah. <laughs> God is so personal. Mm. He put that in there just for them and for anybody else that needed it. If you're going to have to walk through fire, I'm going to be there with you and you will not be burned. Mm. Isn't that precious? And, and guys, this is another reason why Scripture is so precious. Like, it's, it's so wonderful that there are promises handcrafted for every situation of your life that you can find in the Word of God. Everything. Even if you happen to be in a situation where someone's going to throw you in fire, hey, we got you covered. You got to pass through water, got you covered there too. Right? He, he is that personal. Which shows me that God doesn't want you to fall. God is not setting you up to fall. He literally is providing everything you need to stand. We just haven't understood that, right? We've just seen what we aren't and what we can't be. But he actually has provided the infrastructure to prepare us to succeed. And I hope that that's, that that's clear. Because this is sober. This is real, guys. We, we need to be earnest in searching our hearts and dealing with these things that we wrestle with. That's 100% true. But you're not doing that alone. God forbid. We'd all be lost if we were doing that alone. Yeah? He's that personal. He'll give you whatever you need to succeed. Anyone else? Okay. Well, let's, let's pray to close this first uh, session, and then we'll pick up and, and finish out this thought process. I want to share some things with you that are on my heart uh, that I've been reading and how God's been speaking to me, too. But let's, let's close this part. There's still some more Daniel's thing, but um, we're kind of going towards a solution now. We're done with the narrative. God in heaven, just... Thank you that you've used this moment right now in Earth's history through this coronavirus to open our eyes to the fact that our priorities have largely been out of whack, that we have not understood the value of our day-to-day -day decisions, and that um, you seem to place a higher priority on those than we do. And so we're just praying that through the example that you gave of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you would help us to recognize that those things that seem small are actually revealing who we are and who we will be um, in the crises to come. And so, God, we want to be faithful. We want to be people who take our responsibilities seriously. You're going to call us to be husbands and wives and parents. And those day-to-day -day responsibilities don't just affect us. They affect them let alone uh, the bigger picture of what's going on in the great controversy. So, Lord, I just pray that you would open our eyes to the fact that you are available in every scenario that we encounter throughout the day, and that we can commune with you, we can talk with you, we can seek your advice and counsel on what to do, how to do it, and you'll even give us strength to carry forward the noble principles you'd love for us to live. May we recognize just how practical, personal, and available you are, and may we take advantage of that as our plea. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit 
www.audioverse.org.